0: you're tuned to positively terrible i'm producer dan and each week my buddy scott and i discuss surviving and thriving after trauma it's a journey that started when scott his wife's fiance and her boyfriend walked into a bar this week's decent human being is dana he's got a fucked up story about lots of childhood trauma settle in my terrible listeners today's episode is going to be positively terrible hey scott hey dan what's going on man just hanging out recording a podcast what's going on with you that sounds like a wonderful way to start the day i coincidentally am doing the same it's uh it makes for a great saturday doesn't it it sure does yeah exciting stuff um so we've got a guest today named dana and dana i've mentioned it already this morning When I first talked to him, he told me a bunch of stories and then kind of got into the point where he's like, and then I turned eight years old and I was taken a little aback. This man is in a very good place in his life for someone who's been through so much. So Dana, how are you today?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Oh, thank you so much for being on. So if you had a little teaser, if you
1: had a sentence or two to tell the the listeners
0: what we're going to be talking about today, what would that be?
1: Well, I uh, can uh, proudly claim that I've healed a lot of trauma. Uh, pretty much everything that could happen to a person decides maybe overt physically abuse, uh, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, abandonment. Uh, I've witnessed a lot of violence, all kinds of stuff uh, in the course of my uh, young years.
0: Yeah, I can't do anything but shake my head and... Uh, say, I'm glad that you're here today and willing to share. It sounds like you've must have really taken control of of your life and and how things affected you at, at some point. And I admire you for that. So thanks for being here, Dana. Thank you. All right, so let's, let's kind of turn back the clock. A lot of times I start these interviews by asking kind of the same question, like, who were you back then? But the way you and I talked, it sounds like there might not even have been a who you are that had been formed before there was some uh, informing of your personality by trauma. So if we can go back a little bit, can we talk about um, like kind of your, your, your earliest memories and, and who you were and what was going on in your life? I, I know
1: that this is really young, Well, you know, what I didn't tell you the first time I uh, met with you is that my trauma started uh, in utero, and I know that's hard to imagine, but I had a very vivid memory of when I was about six months inside my mom, and uh, my sister was probably about a year and a half, two years old, and my parents lived in Canada at the time, and so we had a basement. My mom was doing the laundry. And my father came home from work and my parents got in a huge fight with each other because my mom figured out that my dad was having an affair with his secretary. So what the conclusion that she came to is that the reason he was being unfaithful was because she was ugly being pregnant with me. Oh God. So I know this sounds odd, but I had a very vivid memory of taking all of her ugliness into my little body through my umbilical cord and, um, I was actually born allergic to my mother's milk, and I almost died because nobody could figure out why I couldn't take any nutrition from my mom. Now, I I know that this is a a concept that most people may not believe, but when I first had this memory, I came home and told my wife, and she said, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. And then about a year later, she was having lunch with my mom, and my mom actually described the whole situation that I remembered, and I never told my mom about it. The only thing that my mom didn't know was my relationship to her pain, uh, which started off a really awful relationship between me and my mom that pretty much lasted on and off for the most of our lives together uh, because yeah. I became the pain manager in my family.
0: Yeah. And um, I will say, in, you, you said, you know, some people may not believe it. And I, w- I was going to ask about that. And I, first things first, I'll say is – I know that there's trauma that there's absolutely trauma you can get before you're born. Okay. The, there's not a question on that. Is there any study or any, is this something that you've heard of with other people that they have recognized or realized some traumas from when they, before they were born?
1: Um, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist by trade. Um, I've been practicing about 35 years and I specialize in trauma do a lot of hypnosis with people, and uh, yes, they do recall uh, trauma in utero. Not everyone, but certain people. So that's a long yes.
0: All right. Now, appreciate the long yes, because, of course, this is something a lot of people aren't familiar with, so that is definitely helpful. And I just wanted to make sure that we, we talked about that a little bit because I bet there were people who were like, eh, I'm not so sure about that. Um, well, so that uh, that's k- kind of some helpful context. Thank you.
1: Why would you not be skeptical? And the only reason I mentioned it is because just out of the blue, my wife was having lunch with my mom, and she told my my, my wife the whole story. Uh, and so it was pretty much confirmed that what I remember was true. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So you you come out of the womb with some... Hard times already. I, I will say, um,
1: absolutely. Um,
0: so those are early years.
1: Was go ahead. Very major trauma that I suffered. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the hospital to have uh, hernia surgery. That I was born with a double hernia as a little boy, and um, back in those days, uh, you could, your parents didn't stay with you when they left you at the hospital. So my parents dropped me off, and an orderly came in to the hospital uh, toward the evening. To kind of get me ready for the next morning surgery, and uh, sadly, he sexually abused me um, that afternoon. He put my penis in his mouth, and he told if if he told me if I told anybody that he would kill me. And so, when they were wheeling me into surgery the next morning, he was the person pushing the gurney. And when I was laying on the table being anesthetized, I thought they were killing me because I was losing consciousness. So, I was screaming at the top of my lungs. I won't tell. I won't tell. And these memories got so repressed as a result of uh, the fear that I was dying that this didn't come back up in my life until I was in my thirties.
0: Wow. When you recovered the memories, but
1: do you- Yeah, I had an amazing experience um, where I I learned hypnosis and I knew there was something wrong because I was having, when my daughter turned four, which the age that I was, it started unconsciously triggering memories inside of me. And Mm -hmm. I kept having the same nightmare night after night. And I kept thinking, oh, there's something like I'm losing my mind here (laughs) because this was already after having about a decade of really intense therapy in my 20s, early teens and 20s. And sexual abuse never came up Mm -hmm. uh, in the course of all the therapy I did, because, you know, usually people have symptoms uh, that indicate that there's something that might have happened. I didn't really have any sexual symptoms or any sort of uh, indication that this could have happened. Um, I don't know how graphic I can be on your podcast, but w- what I will tell you, however graphic that, you want to be. The only thing that was weird was that when a woman would perform all sex on me, I would go numb. And I thought to myself, I wonder why people like this so much, because it's not doing anything. <laughs> I just dismissed it as a, a you know, a uh, some people like things and some people don't. Uh, because all of the other stuff that happened to me was way more important in the course of my therapy that was all conscious that I could remember. So um, I met somebody, amazingly enough, at a party on New Year's Eve, and she had a pad of paper with her. I swear to you that within 10 minutes, she started writing, and I looked at her like, what's with this woman? Well, what happened was that she wrote the whole story of what happened to me, and she didn't know me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I swear to you, we knew each other for like five minutes. And I looked down on the paper and as soon as I started to read it, I remembered everything. Wow! So it was actually an incredibly miraculous situation that changed my life in uh, some fairly dramatic ways, both spiritually and emotionally, because um, I thought having a gift like she had was pretty remarkable that you could, that you could help somebody heal and not even know them in such a, you know, dramatic way. Um,
0: Did this person dissipate into thin air when you were done talking to her? Or was she a real human being?
1: Well, I'm smiling now because she's actually my sister-in-law now. (laughs) Okay, so she does exist. And and so this is a whole, like, this could be a whole podcast. Uh, (laughs) And and I've actually interviewed her a, a couple times on my podcast where we talk about our meeting and how things transpired and what it was all about. Uh, we actually just did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on healing trauma with love uh, okay. because this woman has an incredible gift. She writes, in my opinion, from God or whatever you want to call it. Sure. And it's really profound. So okay. uh, we wrote – she wrote about trauma and then we had a discussion about what was – what showed up in the writing. So Okay. Uh, well, I do want to – off topic and I apologize for that. Yeah, um, no,
0: and and I think this is super interesting stuff and I might even come back to it in a little bit. But w- I do want to pull back a little because we have we've, we've jumped ahead some. Um, okay. You had this surgery you did not remember it until later when when you did remember it. Did uh-huh. you remember it as something that had happened to you? Did you remember like the emotions with it or just, oh, is it more yeah. like a picture?
1: Super emotional moment okay. that actually lasted for two or three hours because I was so overcome with, uh, you know, the intensity of what could have been buried inside of my soul all of this time, because I was already practicing and I didn't believe in repressed memory. I thought it was okay. like uh, you know, uh, so I, I got a really important lesson in not having preconceived notions <laughs> about. Anything. And then, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I look back on some of the people that I have been working with previously, and I did not get the clues that they were sexually abused, which is a really important thing in the world of therapy. That if your therapist isn't clean and clear about what happened to them, then unconsciously they're going to avoid things that might trigger their own issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, this is for people who are looking for a therapist based on the need for healing trauma. Make sure that that person has had enough therapy to really take care of whatever their issues might be. Because I be- I became a completely different sort of therapist after this experience oh, wow. and started uh, really devoting my life to helping people resolve all the different types of trauma that they had suffered, uh, including sexual abuse. And, and I can tell you that I've heard stories that you would never imagine could be possibly true, um, you know, about people's lives and the things they've had to overcome. Yeah. Um, I will say that my family had to flee Canada about six months after my surgery because my dad uh, was going to go to jail. He was a criminal. okay. So we ended up leaving the country very quickly and going to Europe for a little while. Uh, then we went to Israel for about four or five months but my dad couldn't learn Hebrew. So we ended up in Brazil, of all places, in 1959. Mm-hmm. And my dad, to, my dad started uh, exporting coffee to the United States and was doing pretty well. But then there was a, a political uprising while we were there. And I remember as a five-year-old looking out the window and seeing soldiers killing people in the street. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? It was so scary and so traumatic to see you know, people being killed in front of me as a little kid. And uh, very shortly after that, we had to leave Brazil in a big hurry because... The government was not friendly to uh, foreigners at that moment. So that's how I actually ended up in California. Yeah. Um, and six months after I arrived here, it was right before school, and I was crossing the crosswalk to go to play in the playground, and I got hit by a truck. <laughs> and my little brother was with me, and I flew up in the air and landed on my butt. Now, I didn't get horribly injured, and I thought that that, that I it, that it was my fault. Yeah. So I'm running down the sidewalk home, my little brother's chasing after me, screaming and crying. And the man that hit me in the in the truck was following me. making. He, I didn't know he was wanting to make sure I was okay. I thought he was there to finish the job. So my brother's oh my screaming, leave my brother alone. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's coming after me. And then finally I realized that um, he just wanted to make sure I was okay. So uh, the trauma just continued from... Yeah. that point forward it's it was almost laughable
0: by the time you got to and then i moved to california and got hit by a fucking car yeah. it's like when is this gonna end <laughs> and my reaction was almost a laugh not in a haha this is funny but like in it a is. holy shit it, you yeah. you packed in a lifetime's worth of trauma in it sounds like three four years
1: and well, And a few months later, uh, I was a pretty wild kid. I spent a lot of time in the emergency room. I was uh, (laughs) surfing on a rocking chair in my living room. I flew (laughs) off the rocking chair into the side of a, a, a coffee table.
0: Oh, my God. My
1: eye right here hit the edge of the coffee table and split my head open. And there was blood everywhere. And I'm so lucky I didn't lose my eye. Uh And my parents were actually away, and we had a babysitter. So they came home to b- a bloodbath, and, uh, you know, things just <laughs> continued from there. It <laughs> sounds like of, it. Of, I laugh at it because it's like, you know, holy shit, how much can a person deal with and still right. kind of put one foot in front of the other? Right. I wouldn't say by that by the time that all this happened, I was a super anxious, really angry kid. Yeah. And so I started to lead a life of... uh of violence i fought all the time okay
0: and dana uh, it, can we come back to that in just a second because yeah. I, I do have some questions you left us kind of with a lot to unpack in a very okay. short period of time okay. when you had the surgery yeah so is having surgery in itself for someone of that age already a trauma
1: yeah i mean i, I you know uh uh being left at the hospital as a four and a half year old was oh, sure was super scary, but then having somebody, uh, you know, abuse you and threaten you with death, it was pretty uh, a defining moment in my life, even though I didn't remember it afterwards.
0: Yeah, and then six months later, you're moving around. Was was your house chaotic in general, or did it kind of get chaotic at that point?
1: Well, I will say that um, uh, some of it is based on my, um, my, I come from a Jewish family. Okay. Uh, On the thermostat, in the wall, there was not a temperature regulator. It was an anxiety regulator. And my mom was in charge of how much anxiety that we suffered every day. And it was either a ton of anxiety or panic. Because she lived in a constant state of hyperarousal and was a very, very anxious person. Okay. Um, My dad was very preoccupied in making money because he had to quit high school as a 14 year old to support his family. Mm -hmm. So both of my parents came from extreme poverty and deprivation and anti-Semitism that they were trying to cope with. So they were not really very present uh, to me and my brother and my sister. They were just so preoccupied with trying to figure out how to survive. And I'm really lucky because I never went to sleep hungry. And I never went to sleep with a roof over without a roof over my head. So, yeah. despite all the crap that they had to deal with, my dad was responsible enough to uh, uh, be really good at being a criminal. He was great at it actually. I, I, I assume the poverty is what led him to get in trouble with the law. Yeah, because uh, you know, when you're 14, you have no education and there, no there's nothing you can do except right. to come, you know, to survive. He had to support his two brothers and his parents. As a fourteen-year-old, I don't know how he did that. You know, <laughs> well, and that I didn't was even gonna... what I was up as a fourteen-year-old. All I cared about was, you know, being a knucklehead.
0: <laughs> right. Well, so... and you just said the, the survival, and that was actually kind of something that I was wondering: like, if is the criminal cr- criminal activity was it still about survival when? you were around i mean at some point i'm sure that it absolutely 100 percent was but did it evolve at all was there any greed behind it was there anything like that as well
1: well my dad was actually a really good salesman so um part of the time we lived in los angeles he actually had a legitimate job mm-hmm. uh he became the sales manager of the largest uh, swimming pool company in california and did really, really well. And we were on our way to becoming very wealthy, uh, comfortable people. But because of the way my dad felt about himself, he sabotaged everything. So um, we lost everything. And he ended up buying a company that went bankrupt. So we lost everything again. And he committed a couple felonies in the course of uh, his business practices and almost went to jail again. Um, and so this is during my you know, 12, 13, 14 year old life. By that point, I realized that fighting was a really bad idea, so I started getting high. I lived in Los Angeles, and drugs kind of poured through the, uh, the, you know, they just poured into the world during the '60s, -hmm. and nobody knew anything about anything. So we, my friends and I, just started getting high at a very young age, and I I didn't, I didn't go to school uh, a day where I wasn't high from the morning, the moment I woke up till I went to sleep at night until i was about 17 and a half when i started therapy for the first time
0: was it anything you could get your hands on or was there a specific drug of need
1: no mostly it was uh marijuana every single okay. day and hallucinogenics um for uh, uh added recreation <laughs> i never okay. got involved in heroin or any of those kind of drugs it was way more uh to enhance the adventure of being a surfer and you know just being a wild teenager yeah
0: so to some extent, out there having fun, but you've also said you were an angry kid.
1: I was, and that turned into depression when I stopped fighting. So I think that my relationship with drugs was about treating uh, an underlying really deep anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. because I never felt comfortable. I was always really lonely, super self-conscious with women. Um, and I was able to have fun, but not compared to the rest of my friends who didn't come from the kind of background that I came from
0: yeah and from your therapist's point of view now, why do you think that was? I mean do you think that moving around a lot made it hard to settle and make friends or the trauma or what was it?
1: I think it was a combination of a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I had an, I, I, when I was in fourth grade, I remember saying to my dad, you have to promise me we're never going to move again because I was so tired of moving. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. And he made me a promise that we would never move again. And then six months later, I came home to a uh, for sale sign in front of my house. Ah. And I remember taking a hammer and just, just destroying that that oh, wow. sign. And, you know, my dad comes outside and I'm just tearing the sign apart. You know, he's screaming at me, what do you do? And I said, well, you promised me. And he said, well, I just changed my mind. Yeah. So, um the instability of living in one place and then a few days later living somewhere else because he had a wild fantasy that he was going to make his millions somewhere oh. else was uh, was very traumatic. But I also, I pretty much raised myself uh, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were just really preoccupied. It's not that they didn't love me, but they certainly were so filled with their own yeah. uh, pain and um, being messed up. And they didn't like each other at all. My dad was very overweight, and my mom would tell him what a fat pig he was, and my dad would tell her what an idiot she was, and that's how they expressed their affection wow. toward each other. So, uh, affection's I, one word for that's it when you were married and any of that yeah. sort of stuff. So, um,
0: do you think when you said that they were preoccupied? is that something you recognized when you were younger or is that something that you only as you matured or even became a therapist came to understand the reasons behind it?
1: Well, I had an experience when I was about 16, I came home one day uh, really stoned out of my mind and we were all sitting down at the dinner table and I was watching my parents interacting with each other and I was really high. So my filters were not working so well. Um, And, I'm thinking to myself, you know, these people fucking hate each other. They don't belong with each other. So mm-hmm. without realizing it out loud, I said, You guys hate each other and you should get a divorce. <laughs> and my brother and my sister, and my parents look at me like, Did you just fucking say that out loud? And I to myself, Holy shit, I did say it out loud. <laughs> you said the thing everybody was probably thinking though, right? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know, but they got really mad at me. I can tell you that. And I was I was premature in my evaluation by only about four years because when I was uh, <laughs> nineteen, they get get a divorce. Okay. Uh, and my father started another family, and I actually have a a younger brother. I'm sixty eight, and I have a younger brother that's uh, forty three. Oh wow! Yeah. So o- my dad, only a
0: quarter century younger. That's it.
1: Yeah. Well, he's my kid's age. <laughs> um, so my kid's uncle is a couple years older than them, and okay. actually I really love him. He's a lovely person. Oh, I'm so sure, that all worked out okay. And luckily, my dad married a woman who really enjoyed his criminal enterprise. So they became white collar criminals and made a lot of money.
0: Okay,
1: <laughs> they were a real power couple. <laughs> they were in a very strange way. <laughs> all their assets offshore, so they couldn't get prosecuted in the United States. Wow. So there's, they were, there... smart. he made a lot of money. You well, had a Walking... lifetime to
0: figure it out, right?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and just stop being so self-destructive. That every time he became successful, he stopped fucking it up. He started <laughs> to really believe that it was okay to, you know, keep the money that you stole from other people.
0: <laughs> okay, well, you know, it, it, I can see why maybe someone who lives that type of lifestyle feels that way. But Dana you've left us with a lot of doors that could open right now and and go down different paths. Okay. I do want to back up a little bit because you mentioned living through some pretty intense political circumstances when Yeah, I didn't
1: know for the time I was there.
0: Yeah. So could you tell us a like, a, a little bit about that what was it like i mean you said bodies in the street i, I the soldiers, forget even that
1: part there was like, a, they were fighting in the streets and the soldiers were killing the people that were trying to overthrow the government or i i mean look i was five years old i didn't really understand okay all i know is that visually it was very very frightening
0: okay that that's good context that it was still five years old because I was wondering, was there anything else that you could recognize? Like, were you able to go to school?
1: Or... Yeah, I went to school in Brazil. And actually, along with all the shitty stuff that happened, we my parents got a nanny to take care of us. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with a nanny. And she was my first experience uh, of somebody who I loved so dearly and loved me. and I, And I did not know love until I met this mm-hmm. woman in such a clean, pure way. And so I followed her around like a little duckling following with, you know, (laughs) everywhere she went, I was like, I just couldn't get enough of her. And I remember when we left Brazil, I was so, so distraught that we didn't take her with us (laughs) because she was my real mom, as far as I was concerned. Well, it
0: sounds like she provided some stability that you hadn't known.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, So I've had some miracles happen in between the You know the horrible stuff, and she was one of them because uh, I met my wife when I was twenty-one, and it was love at first sight for me. And when I look back, I realize that she's almost a spitting image of this woman that I met in Brazil. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. So I think I spent the rest of my days (laughs) looking for her again. Yeah. Oh, that
0: makes sense. But when you were when you were there. It sounds like she provided some safety for you, maybe. But oh, with, with the chaos that the country was turning into, you might have been too little to understand, but was were you scared? Were there incidents? Were there times where you had to like hide for your own safety because there's fighting out in front of your house or anything like that?
1: It happened very suddenly. That when I, was, I mean, look, Brazil in 1959 was definitely a third-world country. I mean, I remember being sick all the time and the water being turned off all the time. And and I lived in a really nice place actually in in Rio de Janeiro at the time. But you know, it was, I remember crossing the street and thinking I'm going to die. Somebody's going to run me over because you know, nobody obeyed traffic laws or anything. It was a free for all, but you know, the political situation just got way out of hand. So that's why we had to leave so quickly.
0: Yeah. And how quickly was it that you left? Do you do you have any concept of that?
1: Mm, you know, I just know that was was in a very short time after, you know, my parents realized the country was so unstable that we really had to leave. Okay. And my mom, amazingly enough, was reading Sunset magazine, and there was an article in it by the, the governor of California at the time about what a great place California was. Mm-hmm. So my mom said to my dad, uh, "We're going to California." He said, <laughs> "Okay," and that's how we ended up in California. Okay.
0: I think that you're not the only people to end up in California because someone read an article about how nice it is to live in California. Um, So you moved back, and you and I privately had spoken a little bit about you being a bully. I
1: was when I was in elementary school. Terrible.
0: Okay, can you remember how that, how and when that even started?
1: Well, for whatever weird reason I lived in a middle-class neighborhood surrounded by uh by Jewish people because my parents only felt comfortable being amongst other Jewish people because of all the anti-Semitism that they experienced as children. Okay. And it was really violent. It's just so crazy. We were fighting all the time. And I will say even my friends' parents encouraged me to um to fight. It was just a weird it was just there was just bullying and fighting all the time. Yeah.
0: And I've heard, I have heard other people tell stories, not on this podcast, but it seems like in some areas or communities that that might have been a part of life for a lot of people, like kind of an experience of you lived in the neighborhood, you loved the people, but you beat the hell out of them, too. (laughs) I I don't know if that's what you're describing, but I think I've heard similar stories before.
1: This was the early 60s.
0: Okay. And... You, so did you start picking on specific people or were you just kind of an asshole to everyone or how, why Why do you say bully? Well,
1: I will say that only upon reflection did I realize that the people I picked on reminded me of my own vulnerability and weakness. Okay. And I just wanted to make it go away. And I was always a really intense kid, so mm-hmm. it came quite naturally to me to, um. To fight. Uh, I remember being in the principal's office in my elementary school, and the principal said to me, you know, we should send you to Vietnam. And I'm like 10 years old, right? Uh And I'm like, what the hell is Vietnam? She said, well, there's a (laughs) war there, and you seem to fight a lot, and you seem to like it, so maybe we ought to send you there. And I thought, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's one solution. Um... Yeah, that that was what they, you know— that was their first choice for me. Yeah. And I can laugh about all this stuff now, but I can tell you back when it was all happening, I was not a happy person. Yeah. I was really scared and really vulnerable, and my path in life was to be really rebellious. I have a younger brother who watched my sister and I, you know, be really awful people, and he decided that the path uh, for him was to be really kind and... um And uh, he went the opposite way.
0: You told me, if I remember correctly, I have notes, but they're not up right now, that you got into a fight and realized the pain you were inflicting on on other people. Did I remember that correctly?
1: Yes. When I was about 14 or 15, um, Uh. I remember sitting on my bed, and my hand was probably the size of a, a grapefruit from hitting somebody so hard. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm hurting people. And that was actually the first awareness I had that I was being such a horrible person. Um, And I never got in the fight since then. And that's when I turned to drugs as a way of uh, medicating my pain and suffering.
0: Okay. When you got into this fight, are you saying that because you were injured, you realized that that, that injuries hurt
1: (laughs) and, and didn't want to do that to people? You know, what happened was that um, I looked at my hand and I thought, boy, if I'm this messed up, I really must have hurt the other person. And before that time, I was so locked in my own pain that um, I didn't really realize I was having such a terrible uh, effect on other people.
0: Okay. Did you ever have any kind of real repercussions at the time. I mean, no, did you get you know, into any I never, real trouble I, ever I never arrested got in trouble for or anything like or that?
1: any or I never got arrested for uh you know being a vandal or any of that stuff. I was really lucky to get away with whatever uh, uh I was doing.
0: Okay. And then you turned to drugs and how long yeah. was that part of your life?
1: Well, that lasted till I was about uh, 17 and a half, and my parents were very liberal people, and they suggested that I get some help. And I went into therapy at a very young age Mm -hmm. at a a time where therapy wasn't really very popular. This was like probably 1972 or something like that. And that's what began to change my life. And I spent really pretty much of a decade doing really intense therapy. I got really lucky because the therapist I was seeing when I moved to Santa Barbara, uh, took me under his wing. He convinced me that I would make a, a really good therapist. So he became my, my mentor, saved my life, and, uh, and then helped me become become a therapist. And I look back with such fondness about the influence he had in my life. Yeah, I'd say. So
0: when did you decide to be a therapist? What Was, that? was there kind of a moment that you're like, you know what, this is for me?
1: Well, it was. I've always been interested, and everywhere I went as a, a teenager, people would stop and tell me stuff they shouldn't. Like I'd be sitting on a plane or a bus or whatever, <laughs> and I think to myself, "Why are you? Going, why are you telling me this? You shouldn't be telling me this stuff. You don't know me." <laughs> but for some weird reason, people just always felt really comfortable uh, opening up to me. So, um, okay, my and the, my mentor said, you know, you really should consider this because you would be really good at it. And that's really when I made up my mind because okay. I had the support of sort of like a third, a surrogate father, uh, you know, take care of me in that way. And, uh, I've been really lucky. Mm-hmm. I've been extremely um, fortunate to raise my family in Santa Barbara. Um, I have a very successful practice. I got a waiting list. I started my podcast, um, in order to help people that, you know, are not going to find their way into my office. And so, Uh, You know, if you knew the people in my life, Mm -hmm. including my wife and my kids, you'd say, oh, my God, this guy is just the luckiest guy in the world. Um, So I've been quite (laughs) fortunate in a lot of ways. I have a lot of physical problems, but that's the case for a lot of old guys like me. Uh, (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah the back my back i'm just going to start with there and say my back isn't what it used to be so right. i'm I'm getting to that point in my life where i'm starting to recognize the age related we've got that oh Last yeah. time I was at the eye doctor, they told me to start paying attention. How can you see up close? And I'm like, oh, I'm fine. And then, like three months later, I'm taking the glasses off and trying to adjust where I'm holding the pill bottle to be <laughs> able to read it accurately. So I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm starting to get to that part of my life as well. So I understand it. Um, but it sounds like you just said something that warms my heart i don't know another way to say it that's not how i talk but sometimes when i'm talking to people i get these moments where i just kind of well up with this like happiness and for you to sit here and say from the outside looking in you'd say that this guy oh boy he's he's had a pretty lucky life is that where you're at now do you look back and say that you have had a lucky life
1: well the fact that i'm alive is actually pretty much of a miracle because um uh, when I was 45, I went out surfing with my friends and uh, uh, had a fatal heart attack in the water. And the only reason I'm alive is because they saved my life. Oh, my God. Um, so that was the beginning in of the some water? pretty intense health issues. Uh, I've had quintuple bypass yeah. surgery. I've had a couple strokes. I have, uh, I have as much titanium in my spine as probably anybody could. Um, okay. Uh, my heart is pretty messed up. But despite all of that, I feel like I have a very positive attitude and I feel really fortunate to be alive because I feel like I'm not done yet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I will say that you sound like you've had a lot of things in your life that were lucky and that you should be feel lucky to have. Um but maybe luckiest person in the world might not be the right title for you. So you, you've had the, the good and the bad, but you said surfing at 45 is when you had a heart attack. I am 44 and I ain't going out on any surfboards um, or skateboards or anything like that. So you sound like you've lived pr- a pretty... um Full life. Not always the best, but, but it's been had a lot packed in in the time that you've been here. Uh, it sounds like to me, in our language, it sounds like you get to work with a lot of decent fucking humans. And Dana, you you yourself? sound to me like a decent fucking human you passed passed the the test test. yes yes so we appreciate here this has been great thank you so much for being on dana this has been very informative i am humbled i am grateful i am so happy you were here today and as always dana this has been absolutely positively terrible i